Anyway, again, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. I'm super thankful that you're here. There's lots of places, y'all, that you could be. There's lots physically. There's lots you could be laying in the bed um, just sleeping right now. But, but for some reason, the Lord got you up, got you here, or he got you up, and you may be still laying in the bed watching on YouTube or on Facebook. But we're thankful that you are spending this morning, however you're spending this morning uh, with us, we're thankful that you are. So I, w- I want you to... Look at the screen, and I want you to, to, to tell me kind of what do you think of when you, <clears throat> when you see that on the screen? What do you think of? I would, there you go. And particularly, particularly, back up 20 years ago, you would totally be thinking about, well, that's the emergency. That's the emergency number. You know, 20 years ago, you even would have said that differently. You would have said 911, right? All of us, we would have said 911, but 19 years ago, that became a date. It became a date. It became 911. It became a date that really is carved into our memories and really it's carved into our hearts. All of us that were alive then probably remember what we were doing that morning when that happened. We, we, it's just carved into our, it's etched in our mind. Now look at the screen, and you know when you see that, you see 2020. <laughs> You see, twenty. See, we're laughing. It's it's hilarious. What do you think of when you hear those words, twenty twenty? If this was, you know, for the last forty years, we're thinking. And if you're definitely old enough, it's it's this news show that's been on ABC for I don't know, thirty five or forty years. But I would imagine, from this point on, twenty twenty is going to be this year that is forever remembered as a year of suffering, like really suffering and. And it's funny because there's funny memes that all of us have seen on Instagram or Facebook or somebody's tweeted them out, these funny memes about 2020 all over the social media world. But the reality, y'all, the reality is that there has been huge, ginormous, real, straight-up suffering, big-time suffering. In fact, y'all, just in this last week, a pastor in, in... in our city, pastoring a church for the last 43 years, I believe, Edgewood Baptist Church, died of COVID. Andy Merritt. And I would ask y'all and me to pray for their, that church, for the, the folks in that church, and for, uh, for the Merritt family. Their, uh, Andy Merritt has been a, just a sweet, unbelievable pastor for a long time. COVID lost his physical uh, life to COVID. This year has been a, a crisis year. There is no denying that. And I love history. So when I look back in history, I think of, a, uh, of another time when America faced a, crisis, faced a crisis. It was 1857. Y'all probably thinking, 1857, what's this dude talking about? 1857 in the United States, um, America was at both uh, an economic and spiritual crazy low Churches, attendance in churches had dwindled to next to nothing in the mid-1800s. People were skeptical and people were cynical about, quote, religion. Super skeptical and not so different than it is today, right? Very cynical. And it was in the midst of this spiritual crisis that the Lord gave a man, his name was Jeremiah Lanfear. Anybody ever heard of Jeremiah Lanfear? I don't imagine that you have. But Jeremiah Lanfear... The Lord gave him a vision, and this vision that Jeremiah 
had was of starting a noontime prayer service on Fulton Street in New York City. And he marketed this prayer meeting as best you could in the, in the 1850s. You know, he wasn't putting it on Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff, but he did whatever he could do to market his little noontime uh, prayer meeting. The first one was on September 23rd, 1857. When the doors opened on September 23rd at noon, nobody came. In about 30 minutes, he heard the footsteps, some dude walking up the, up the stairs, and he came in, and then another guy came, and then another lady came, and then another guy came, and ended up with six people at his first noontime prayer meeting on September 23rd, 1857. But soon, attendance started going up at his, at his meetings. By October 14th, a couple of three weeks later, uh, there was over 100 people coming to his prayer meetings. They had to begin to use some other buildings around where he was on Fulton Street to handle those, those crowds, and churches started opening their doors. But the churches ended up not being big enough to hold. It had grown to about 2,500 people, and by March of 1858, do the math, however many months later, six months or something later, uh, <clears throat> Burton's Theater, which held 3,000 people, was busting at the seams from Jeremiah Lanfear's noontime prayer meeting. Then they went to firehouses and police stations and other buildings all over the place to, to use to house different little pockets of people praying. They were praying all over New York City. It spread all over the city, but it didn't stop in the city. It spread all over New York State, and then it spread all throughout the New England area and then across the nation. Y'all, tens and hundreds of thousands of people were saved in what's called the Revival of 1858. The revival of 18, 1858, and it's interesting as a, definitely an aside, but it's interesting to note, somebody tell me what happened three years later in our country. Civil War. You think it, it's civil war. You know how many people died in the Civil War? Over 600,000 people. You think God knew that we needed a little revival, we needed a little gospel spread leading up to, to the Civil War. So look, the suffering that happened in 1857 that led to this great revival. Do you think that snuck up on God? You think that? No, that you think the suffering in 2001 when the planes hit the... You think that snuck up on God? You think coronavirus snuck up on God? You think God's looking down and said, man, I didn't know that was going to happen? No, like none of that stuff, none of this stuff sneaks up on God. And Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, he said... For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth, look at the text, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So we're in week three of what we're calling the greatest chapter. We're diving in to Romans chapter 8 and the richness of it. And, the, and, the, and we're digging out some, some truths, some incredible truths from arguably the greatest chapter and the greatest book in the Bible. And today we're going to talk about suffering, and we're going to talk about deliverance, and we're going to talk about hope. We're going to start in verse 18. We'll probably get to about verse 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The reality, y'all, of suffering. The reality of suffering in this life, it's undeniable and it's unavoidable. It is undeniable and it is unavoidable. You, me and you, you and I, we're going to struggle and we're going to suffer in this life. We are. And that word that we translate suffering here, it includes all kinds of pain. 
It includes all kinds of pain and suffering. It includes suffering that comes from persecution. And it includes, uh, uh, in a very real sense, it includes the suffering that comes from this struggle of the spirit to overcome the flesh and the world. You know, we, we, we all, yeah, every one of us, we struggle with sin. And, so, and you hear, you know, you hear pastors and you hear people say we struggle with sin. Like, okay, that's a big picture view of it. But what, pragmatically in the real world, what, what is it? We struggle with anger. We struggle, we struggle with anger and we, we lash out at those that we love. Anybody ever lashed out at somebody that you love? The very person that you don't need to be lashing out at. But we do. We struggle with that stuff. We struggle with sexual sin. We struggle with lust. We struggle, guys struggle when an attractive girl walks by. We struggle to not turn as she walks. We struggle, y'all, is real struggle. We struggle, all of us, with greed, and we struggle with, uh, with unhealthy ambition. And I'm not saying ambition uh, in and of itself is like some bad, sinful thing. Unhealthy ambition, though, is. We struggle with being jealous over the vacation that the Joneses next door took or the car that Miss Smith got, the new car that's better than your car. What did she do to deserve that? Y'all, we struggle with that stuff every day. We struggle with unregulated uh, urges and desires. In life, we struggle with breast cancer and diabetes and pandemics and heart disease, we struggle, all of us, we struggle with aging. We struggle with aging. My knees hurt so bad every morning. Y'all, we struggle with aging. We struggle with loss. A friend of mine, this is the world we live in. A friend of mine's father-in-law took his own life last week. We struggle with loss. All of us do. It is undeniable and it is unavoidable. But the Bible says, Paul here in Romans 8, he says that suffering is nothing compared to the glory that's coming. He says it's not, you can't even compare it. That word that's translated there in that verse, worth, that it's not worth anything. It's this word that's used of weight. It's used of, of measuring. You see my cool drawing of the scales? It, it says that it, it compared the Compared to the glory, the suffering compared to the glory, it just weighs nothing. It's like the suffering is a feather and the glory is a gajillion pounds. Like that's what Paul is saying, that they, they don't even compare. They don't even compare. And then in today's pain, today's suffering, it's not in vain. It's not, it's, it, it, it has purpose. God makes purpose out of things. It prepares me and you, it prepares a Christian to participate, y'all, in Christ's glory. Suffering and struggles are like a refining process. They're like, like precious metals get refined. As me and you as Christ followers, we're being refined, and inevitably, it's things that we have to go through. We have to go through that stuff. Look at, first, look at this verse. First Peter, two verses in chapter 1. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. you got stuff going on in your life, Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, and gold perishes, Peter says, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and in, in glory and in honor at what? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. It refines us, and it refines us by forcing us to grow or to expand our trust in God more and more and more and more. The suffering drives us to throw ourselves at the foot of the cross, to cast ourselves more and more into the, into the just loving, gracious hands of our Heavenly Father. Unfortunately, this is often the only time that we do that. Unfortunately, for some of us, the only way that we learn is through pain. It's silly, but lots of times, the only time we throw ourselves at the foot of the cross is when we're suffering. The only time when we learn lessons and life lessons is through pain. This week, all this stuff, this happened this week. A friend of mine who's on the front end of walking through a scary, like legit scary health issue. Very scary health issue. She said this, posted on Facebook. This is a, a, a screen captured what, what she put on Facebook. Whatever God does to my story, I will use it to be his story of grace and love. I will use it to glorify him. My life isn't my own, but his. Y'all, that's perspective. That is just perspective. I will use my story to bring glory to the Lord. That's the lens by which Christians view suffering. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, he said, for this light momentary affliction, which is real, y'all, I'm not minimizing suffering, I'm not minimizing the struggle, I'm not minimizing the pain, they're real, it's real stuff, right? And Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Y'all suffering it is part of the process of sharing in Christ's death. We share in his resurrection. We share in his death. The, the baptism, water baptism is an image of that. It's an image of us sharing in his death and being raised to walk in the what of life, in the newness of life, in the newness of life. And it all culminates in me and you sharing in his glory. If glory is the majesty of God, it's his character seen for all that it really is, then his glory that is revealed in us will happen suddenly when we become all that he has intended for us to be. He'll allow us, the Lord will allow us to share in, in, in really what belonged to Christ alone in that glory. We'll share with Christ in the glory of his sonship. We get to share that. That'll be the day when we fully reflect the image of God. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Y'all, these are tough verses to get our arms around. But our second big point is this. The creation 
all of creation, suffers and struggles big time for deliverance from corruption. Your second little fill in the blank. All of creation suffers and struggles with deliverance from corruption. The text says the creation, all of creation. And understand this, when man sinned in the garden, it violated everything. When man sinned in the garden and fell, he drug all of creation down in the toilet with him. It, wasn't, it didn't just affect mankind. It affected all of creation. All of creation paid the price for it. The world, since that day in the garden, the world has suffered decay and corruption since then. Cursed is the ground. The Lord said that in Genesis 3.17. Cursed is the ground, Adam, because of what you did. Verse 19 goes on and it says that the creation waits with eager longing. The King James translation says earnest expectation. Creation is waiting and creation is expecting and creation is anticipating. Well, well for what? You know, that phrase that is used there in the original language, it's only used seven times in the New Testament. And every time that it is used, it's used in connection, uh, connected to a believer's anticipating Jesus' return. And here it's connected with all of creation eagerly waiting for that day. Creation, all of creation waiting for that day. Let me give you a couple of facts about creation, about the universe, the world that all of us live in. Number one, it is subject to corruption. Verse 20 and 21 say it's subject to corruption. Scientists see it every day. All of creation suffers um, hurt, and all of creation suffers damage and, and loss and decay and deterioration and erosion and death. And all of, the, all of creation struggles for life. Every day creation is struggling for life. Think about the disease and the savagery in the animal world. Think about earthquakes and tornadoes and volcanoes and starvation and storms and attacks and, and all of the struggle for survival that takes place every day. Creation suffers and it struggles and it's frustrated because it can't attain the purpose for which it was made. Y'all, do you think that struggle existed before the fall? No, it didn't. Man jacked it up for, for everything. And so creation is frustrated that it can't attain what it was designed to be. And so it waits. And so this, this, this first sort of point about creation is that there is a, a suffering and a struggle for deliverance. So the second fact is this. It will, all of creation, at the end of the day, it will be delivered from corruption. You do know that. It got jacked up in the garden, but it will be ultimately delivered from corruption. Creation will experience, to use a Richard Moore word, the awesomeness of living forever with man, of being completely and per perfectly renovated restored, redeemed. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. Eventually, creation's, the, the, creation's frustration is going to end, and verse 21 says it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
freedom from sin and freedom from evil, the effects of sin and the effects of evil, freedom from the decay and the corruption and the death. Revelation chapter 22, and we don't have time to go down that road. Revelation chapter 22, write it down. The first, I know I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to know every verse in the Bible. Revelation 22, like the first 10 verses, talks about the removal of the curse that started way back in the garden. Write it down, go back and read that. This third fact about creation is that it's groaning in labor for deliverance. It's groaning in labor for deliverance. Paul paints this picture of a woman giving birth, and I remember the first time I read this in Romans 8, I'm like, I don't even understand what he's talking about. This is a terrible illustration. So it's so funny, this Ed Griffinhagen in like 2015 telling Paul, the apostle Paul, that's a terrible illustration. You should have come up with something better. I'm like, yeah, because I just kind of didn't really understand it. But Paul paints this picture of this woman giving birth and, 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 it, and, and the, that creation has been experiencing these birth pangs and this struggle to survive and, and it's been in this pain and in this labor ever since the fall until now, verse 22 says, until now, right? And he, so Paul relates what we in creation are going through now to the pains of childbirth and the liberation and the glory that we will know when Christ returns to this world. He compares that to the birth of a child. And so childbirth is a very painful thing for a mama to be. I'm told that it is. The pain is real and it's severe. I'm told that it's real and severe. I'm also told that it's my fault. I don't get that. I'm told that it goes on for a long time. Long time. But you know, it's not the pain of hopelessness. It's the pain of, of hopeful. It's hopeful pain. Hopeful pain that has a great expectancy. Hopeful pain that is eagerly looking forward to something. I'm told that, that, that it's pain that is happily and willingly accepted because of the result where a new life is brought into the world. I'm told that this pain is worthwhile in light of the outcome. That the pain is quickly forgotten. It's quickly forgotten in the joy of a new baby uh, a new little baby boy or girl. I'm told that that pain, not that it goes away, but that it's forgotten. Let me tell you about the night that, that my wife Susan went into labor with our oldest son, Zach. October of 1992. Atlanta Braves are in the World Series for the second year in a row. Toronto Blue Jays are leading the series two games to one. It's 8.30 p.m. on October 21st. I sit down in my, I'm 27, I sit down in my recliner, like every guy's got a recliner, I guess. I sit down in my recliner, I'm 27 years old, and I'm ignorant as the day is long. Susan's in the kitchen, Tom Glavin is pitching, he had pitched game one and one, he's pitching now game four. Um, and so, Braves are playing the Blue Jays, the Blue Jays are, uh, so Atlanta's in the bottom of the first. Glavin throws first pitch, ball one, he throws the second pitch. Strike one, it's a one and one count. He throws the third pitch, strike two, it's a one and two count, and I hear this little moaning. I'm like, what is this noise? And I realize it's Susan in the kitchen, and I listen a little more, and, she, and I hear she's crying. And I go into the kitchen, 
And as soon as I walked in the kitchen, I looked down, her water had broken. She's crying, whimpering, kind of crying, her water had broken. And, and I said, before I tell you what I said, let me preface what I said with men are idiots. And I'm the chief idiot in the front of the line of a band of idiots. So, and, and I said, I really did say this. It's so funny looking back in history. But, but I said, hey, can this hold on for about three hours? And I, as the, as the, and my daddy used to tell me as a kid, make sure that the noise that's about to come out of your mouth is an improvement upon the silence you're about to break. Well, in this case, it was not, and I couldn't, like I even, it, life got in slow motion, and I was trying to grab the words before they went into her ear, you know, but I failed. So, but anyway, we grab her bag, you know, had a bag packed. We grab her bag, we get in the car, it's like 8.45 at night. We get in the car, and we go 100 miles, we're so stupid. We're driving 100 miles an hour to the hospital thinking that the baby's just going to jump out on the way to the hospital or something. And then Susan spent the next 19 and a half hours in groaning in pretty nasty pain. And Zach was born 345 in the afternoon the next day. And she would tell you, and I'm for real about this because she has told me many times, you know, <clears throat> she would say that, that the joy and the majesty, and the beauty, and the glory, and the miracle of the delivery crushes the pain of the labor. Crushes it. That the deliverance just so outweighs the pain that was real pain. I'm told it's real pain. I'm told it's my fault. But she said it crushes all that. And so Paul says the suffering, like a woman's labor pains, has a wonderful outcome, and the outcome is deliverance. Y'all know we will be delivered when it's all said and done. This whole scene in verses 19 through 22, it is, it is the creations waiting for the day of redemption, anxiously and expectantly and longingly and eagerly waiting to be delivered from corruption. Creation is moaning and groaning and crying for one thing, y'all, and it's the same thing that me and you are moaning and groaning and waiting expectantly for, and that is for the unveiling of the very Son of God. The very Son of God, waiting for Him to be unveiled, verse 23. It says that not only the creation, so not only the creation is waiting for all of that, but we ourselves, Paul says, and we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so I want us to land today on this word that's used five times in these three verses, hope. 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 A number of years ago. Researchers are performing this uh, experiment. They're doing this experiment to see the effect that hope has on people who are engulfed in hardship, the effect that hope has on people who are embroiled in really true, sure enough, suffering. And so they took these rats. I hate rats, snakes and rats. But they took these rats. If you're a rat lover, forgive me. But they took these two sets of rats and they put them in two separate tubs of water. And the researchers left the first tub of rats 
uh, they left the rats in the tub and they found that those rats in 60 minutes died. They all of, all of them drowned. This other bucket of rats they put in the same depth of water but they, they periodically, about every 10 minutes, they'd pull them out for about 30 seconds and then they'd put them back in. And when that happened, the second set of rats swam for over 24 hours. First bucket of rats drowned in 60 minutes. Second one lasted over 24 hours. Why? Why? Hashtag, if you're watching, hopeful swimming rats. Hope, hashtag, hopeful swimming rats. So why did those rats swim for over 24 hours? And the first one, first bucket drowned in, in 60 minutes. It wasn't because they gave them a rest. It was because those rats suddenly had hope. Those animals somehow hoped that if they could just just struggle, if they could just stay afloat a little bit longer, that this hand would reach down from the heavens and rescue them. If they could just struggle a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And the way they did that experiment, it was 10 minutes they pulled them out. And then the next time it was 11 minutes and they pulled them out. And so this hand comes down and rescues them if they would just struggle a little bit longer and persevere a little bit longer. Now think about if hope can hold that kind of a power for stupid unthinking rats, how much greater should hope affect the way that me and you live? Are you kidding me? For a Christian, hope is the assurance of God's promises. Hope is the guarantee. Hope is the guarantee of the promises. It's hope that assures me and you. Verse 24, it says, For in this hope we were saved. Well, hope for what? Hope for adoption as children of God and hope for redemption. Hope that, it, Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? We don't, we don't hope for what we see. We hope for what we don't see. I don't, need to, I don't need to hope that this is sitting here. I know I can see it and feel it and touch it. And so our full redemption, our full being redeemed by the Lord, it has not happened yet. It will happen. It will happen when Christ returns, and the hope is the guarantee of all that. That is why it, it is hope that's still there for believers. Me and you, we look with confidence for what we can't see. Our eager expectation, our eager anticipation that these verses uh, are talking about, it's like, a, it's like when somebody is driving all night and they're eagerly look, looking forward to seeing this, this beautiful sunset, wherever, wherever that may be. When the mist and the darkness gets driven away and you've got this gorgeous sunset, he knows that it's going to happen and he can't wait for the moment, you know, when it does, when he gets there and he sees all of that. It's that, that hopefulness that is the assurance that you know that you know that you know it's going to be there. Believers look forward. We look forward to our new bodies. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. We look forward to our eternal family and our eternal home. We look forward to the absence of sin and suffering and disease and sorrow and more than anything, y'all, more than anything, we look forward with confident hope, with eager anticipation of being face to face with Jesus Christ. 
We look forward to being face to face with the creator of the universe. Y'all face to, there will be this day when we're face to face with the one who just spoke everything into existence. How could we not look forward with eager anticipation to that day because it's coming? And I have thought a lot about the things that separate a believer from an unbeliever, the things that separate a Christian from a non-Christian. And, and the scripture, the, the book, tells us that hope is one of those things. The scripture tells us that hope is one of the big things that separates a believer from an unbeliever. For many of us, let me not even say that. I'll speak for myself, and then you think about it. For me, I remember the feeling inside on January 17th of 2001. I remember the feeling inside when I got saved. I remember the way that it felt. Man, I couldn't have explained it, but the way that it felt moving from hopelessness to hopefulness. I don't know if hopefulness is a word, but moving from I didn't have hope, I wouldn't have confessed that I didn't have hope, but I didn't. Not having hope to having hope. It is, it is almost inexplicable, that feeling. But everything about my life looked different, and I was filled with hope, and it affected the way that I lived. I talked to my wife differently. I treated my kids differently. I talked to everybody differently. I was embroiled coaching Little League at the time. I coached kids differently. I spoke to their parents differently. I acted differently. Not perfectly. I mean, of course, not perfectly. But it changed having hope. It just changed the way that I kind of looked at, at people and acted and spoke and, and behaved. I cussed like a drunken sailor. And the Lord took that away from one second to the next. It was the craziest thing. He didn't take away all the other junk that I've got, but he took, kind of took that one away. I was filled with hope where I wasn't before. I wasn't miserable. I wasn't walking around miserable. But this newfound hope was it was different and it was incredible. And so in really thinking about that this week, I came up with a few things that I noticed in Scripture about hope. And I'll say this, God chose hope, and I don't think this is on the screen. God chose hope, and hope and faith in Scripture are super linked together. But God chose hope, not sight, to play a role in our salvation. Because if me and you could actually see and touch and feel redemption today, there'd be nothing to hope for. Hopelessness results in us drawing away from the Lord. The devil uses hopelessness to drive us into isolation. The Lord uses hopefulness to draw us into him, to draw us into a deeper and a more intimate and a more trusting relationship with him. God's desire is for me and you to persevere in hope, to be patient in it. Why? Because I believe that he uses our patience, our endurance, our, our perseverance in hope to, to to just draw us in, to draw us closer into him, to fellowship with him, to love him, to trust him, to believe him, to believe his promises. For a Christian, our, our hope gets expressed in, um, in several different ways probably. And ironically enough, in Romans 15, Paul calls God the God of hope. And so this word hope, it's used about 
55 or so times in the New Testament. And, and I want to let Scripture, we wanna, I want to kind of end with this. I want to let Scripture paint a picture, and I could give you 50 examples, but I'm going to give you four or five. Let Scripture paint an image of what hope looks like rather than Ed's words. Look, look at this. This is uh, Acts chapter 26. The Apostle Paul is on trial standing before King Agrippa, and Paul says this. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to, to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day and it's for this hope that I'm accused. It's because of the hope I'm accused, Paul says. In Acts 28, Paul says, it is because of the hope of Israel. Who's the hope of Israel? Jesus Christ is the hope of Israel. Paul says it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm shackled, that I'm wearing these chains. In 1 Timothy, the very for his first letter Paul writes to Timothy the first verse Paul says he says Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our what? our hope he is our hope he is the object of our faith don't tell me I'm a man of faith faith in what? it ain't about your faith it ain't about the hope it's about the object of the hope it's about the object of our faith and Paul tells Timothy, this young pastor, right then, he said, it's about Jesus, bro. It's about him. He says, he is our hope. And then in Ephesians, love Ephesians, Paul's talking about who we were before, who we were our old self, who we were before we bowed the knee, who we were before we said yes to salvation. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, remember that you, uh, that you were at that time separated from Christ, talking about before you said yes, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promise. When you were that guy, Paul says you had no hope. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. Thank the Lord for the word but in verse 13. This was you then, you had no hope. But now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once on the screen you who were once what you were far off you were alienated from God but now but now what's it say in Christ Jesus you were once far off you've been brought near by the blood of Christ it's the blood of Christ that brings you near and then he says in 2 Corinthians in, in, in chapter 1 Paul's talking about the God who raises the dead he's talking about the God who literally raises dead physically dead people to life and he says in verse 10 on him on that one on that God on him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again the hope that he will deliver us again is the guarantee that he will deliver us again last verse first Peter chapter 1 verse 3 Peter says we're born again into a living what into a living breathing organic real authentic hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My question for y'all today, if you're watching online or if you're sitting here, the question is this, have you been born again into what Peter says is a living hope? Have you, where you at? Where you at? Have, is that you? Or are you far away as Paul said? 
Or have you been brought near by the blood of Christ? Have you made this jump from hopelessness to hopeful? And I'm not even saying, are you miserable? I'm saying, have you made a jump from being hopeless to being hopeful? This hope that Paul talks about in Acts 26, this hope that he had in God's promise is the hope, y'all. It is the hope of a Messiah. It's not just hope for hope's sake. It is it is. The hope, all of Israel had hope in the coming Messiah. He came, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's the hope that Paul is talking about, y'all. Something that ought to get an amen. It's the hope in Christ. It's not hope in myself. If you're watching or if you're here, it's not hope in this church. It's not hope in Stephen or Melody or the worship team or me or Richard. It is about Jesus. That is where our hope is. That's the living hope that Peter's talking about. The question then really is, where's your hope? Are you hoping in yourself, your money, your car, your vacation, a bunch of junk? If it is, it's misplaced and it's misguided. He says that we're brought near into intimate relationship with him through the blood of the cross. It is that simple. And if if you have not done that, I'm just saying consider that today and here's the deal I'm going to repent of my sin I'm going to repent of my sin and I'm going to believe that that blood on that cross paid the penalty for my sin y'all pray with me Lord let today be the day that I enter into a hopeful life bought for me by the blood of Christ so Lord I repent of my sin whatever it may be Lord rip it out of my body And I believe that you died for me, that you paid that penalty for my sin that's got to be paid for. And I'm choosing today not to pay for it myself with an eternity in hell, but to accept the fact that you paid for it, and then I get to live with you for eternity. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last thing I'm going to say is this. If you're watching online let us and that happened to you, let us know. Go and fill out an online connection card, y'all, and let us know. If you're standing here, our prayer team today for this service is going to be outside in the front by the window by a little table with a blue cloth on it because as soon as we're done, we got to fumigate this room, and you're not going to want to be in here praying while we're doing it. Well, you may want to be in here praying while we're doing that, but our prayer team is going to be out there. Love y'all. Turn it back over to the worship.